Way back in 1990, Robert Fulgham wrote his iconic, All I Really Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. All I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw some and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. Can I get an amen? When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Fulgham's iconic observations go on, but we'll leave him there before we get to the little seed in the styrofoam cup and holding hands when you're out in the world together. But did you notice the very first observation he had? Share everything. As we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts, the Spirit, the church, and the world, God gave the Holy Spirit to help create the church in order that the church might be a witness of His love to the world. We continue in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and if you haven't already, open your Bibles there to Acts 4, 32. In the Bible app called YouVersion, you can follow along with our notes or they'll be on the screen for you as well. But nobody knows how to share, how to give to others, sacrifice for others, be otherish, quite like mothers. So although I could have preached an exclusive Mother's Day sermon, when I saw this topic on this day, I thought this will work. Like most things, however, sharing is easier to say than to do. It's easier in principle than in application. And as adults, we want to add conditions and complications and so on. Yet deep down, because God wired it in us, we know it's good to share. And here in the conclusion of Acts chapter 4 and in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we have a beautiful but challenging example of sharing. We've got two major movements to our sermon, each with two subpoints. We've got two concerning questions in our sermon and then two concluding applications. So it's a sermon of twos, even though it starts in the end of Acts chapter 4. So if you're able to stand with me now in the honor of reading God's Word, would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 511. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was on them all. They were no needy, among the, no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money for the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need." Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself. He brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you did not receive? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to be buried. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray together. God, our Father, when we read something like this, at the beginning of it, it's encouraging. We're like, wow, good for them. But this later part, we're like, whoa, this is scary. We think about what we know about you, God as a God of grace and mercy, but also a God of righteousness and holiness and justice. And we try to make these concepts come together in our mind as we read a passage of Scripture like this. It's in the Bible. You put it here because you wanted us to know it, because you wanted us to learn something about you and your character and about us and how we ought to behave together as a church and a people filled with the Holy Spirit. But we've got to admit we're troubled, God. So what do we do? We bring it to you. And we say, God, by the very same Spirit that saved these people and created the first church, by the very same Spirit who filled them with such power in the verses before and caused the very place they were meeting in to be shaken in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we pray that you'd speak to us today, that we would not be intimidated by what we think but we would be invigorated by what your Spirit says to say. And whatever lesson it is you have to teach for each and every one of us as individuals or for us as a church, Father, we come before you humbly and ask you to speak by your Spirit through your Word even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said, there are two major movements to this sermon and the first is the beautiful results of unity. The beautiful results of unity in the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 32, begins this summary statement throughout the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote Acts, does such things. He has movements and passages where he tells stories about what's happening in the church. And then he'll have two or three verses where he brings together a summary, kind of looking back, but also foreshadowing what's ahead. And so he does that for us here in chapter 4. 4, verse 32, through the end of the chapter, verse 37. At the heart of the sharing is a deep unity, a love for one another, humility towards one another, considering others' needs, overcoming the natural desires of self, being supernaturally motivated to be selfless, not unlike Philippians 2, chapter uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul says, make my joy complete, being like-minded. 
And he says that uh, of the same love, being in the same spirit and purpose. But again, it's easy to say that, but it's hard to do that. To make that aspirational value an actual value. To live that out in what you're doing. So your first sub-point there is sharing freely with others. The first result of unity that was a beautiful thing was sharing freely with others. And we've got these scriptures that tell us about us starting in verse 32 there. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was his own, but they shared what they had. They shared what they had. Their loves, their hopes, their passions, all this were one in um, heart and mind. They no one claimed his possessions as his own. I means legally they were still theirs, yet their heart and mind had such a radical attitude of love for one another, they were willing to share those things. There was no needy among them. So what we see is not unlike modern landowners or landlords. Those who had more than they needed took from that, sold it to provide money to provide for the needs of those who had less than they needed. We're going to talk more about this in a moment with our concerning question about is this Christian communism or something like that, but let's just walk through the scripture first and we'll come to our summary understanding in a moment. Verse 35, it says, they put it at the apostles' feet who distributed it to anyone as they had need. It's interesting to note that in verse 34 and 35, there are five verbs, all of them imperfect in the Greek, and that means that they were ongoing actions that were continual. And let's look just even in our English there. It says there was no needing among them for time to time those who owned land. They owned. That's an imperfect verb. So they continued to own land, but go on, and they sold them, and they brought them. So they continued to sell, sell as they were need, continued to bring it to the apostles as they were need. Verse 35, put it at the apostles' feet, continued to put it there at the apostles' feet as symbolic of giving it to the Lord and the church. And the apostles then in the end of verse 35 distributed it to anyone as they had need. So these are ongoing actions. As there were needs, people met the needs. Those who didn't have the means were blessed by those who did have the means, and they shared together. Isn't it a beautiful picture? And then there's an example, an illustration of this picture in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought it, the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, Luke has this interesting habit as a writer where he foreshadows. Most of us know what foreshadowing is, right? Where you give a hint of something that is to come. We've not heard Barnabas' name before. This is the first time we hear it. But what Luke is doing is saying, here's the character of this man. And oh, by the way, in a couple chapters, he's going to become much more prominent. That's why he drops this in. You know how when you're watching a movie or reading a book or something like that, and the author or the writer puts something in that you're like, hmm, why'd they mention that detail? But the other reason is to give a positive example. This is somebody that was named, that was known, that gave in this sort of way. So rather than the faceless members of the crowd that we just know were among the early church and we go, wow, this is cool that they did this, here's a guy we can actually learn some more about. He had this nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. We've got people of all ages here, and I know grandparents generally have some sort of nickname. Some of you are just grandma and grandpa, and others of you have special grandparent names, right, that may come from something. And 
you know, uh, most of us have had a nickname at one time or another. We have a church member here that when I heard him referred to as Uncle Fuzzy, I thought, why do they call him Uncle Fuzzy? There's nothing fuzzy about him that I know. Well, when I asked, I found out he used to wear a buzz haircut, so he had fuzzy hair. Maybe you have some sort of nickname that is something funny from your past that your siblings or your parents gave you or somebody who loves you, but wouldn't it be cool to have a nickname that was such a character trait, a son of encouragement, that you would be known in such a way that they wouldn't just call you by your name, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, but be like, that guy's Barnabas. Barnabas is so cool because he's just got this spirit about him that he encourages other people. Well, He's our positive example of what happened. But as we move to our second point, our second sub-point, I should say here, under this beautiful example of unity and the results of unity, we need to see why they were giving. What was it that motivated them to give? And we need to remember that the purpose of the book of Acts was sharing the gospel was evangelism, was changing people, that lost people would be found, that sinful people would be made righteous by Jesus, and the world would be changed as churches were established, and the mission of the church was to bring the gospel to the lost, which leads us to that commission. Remember back at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see that here in your second sub-point, and that's preaching with power and grace. Preaching with power and grace. That's from verse 33. The reason they were filled with unity and the reason that they gave was in order to preach the power. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Now go back to last week's sermon in that passage of Scripture. They prayed when confronted, and it was their prayer that was earnest and heartfelt that came to God and said, God, you've got to do this. You've got to embolden us. You've got to empower us. That's part of it. But their hearts were so changed by these prayers and the love they felt from God for one another that they gave, and the apostles preached with power and grace. At Southview, our purpose is growing Christ followers. It's who we are. We're, as a noun, we are growing Christ followers. It's what we do as a verb. We do things in order to grow Christ followers. And we have these values and we have our next steps on the wall back there that remind us of how we grow Christ followers. And part of that is sharing the gospel with others. Gospel sharing is one of our values. That we value others because we know all people are made in God's image. And they have an eternal soul that's going to spend the rest of their life beyond here in hell or in heaven. And we have a duty to share the gospel with them. The apostles shared the gospel with great power and continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. This made up these first verses as we studied them. This beautiful unity of the church, sharing freely and sh uh, preaching the gospel with power. But there's an uncomfortable question here as well. And that's on your outline. There are uncomfortable question number one is this. Is this teaching communism? I mean, if the church, the first church, and we're supposed to follow the model, the example of the first church, is the first church is sharing freely with one another and meeting people's needs. Doesn't that mean that we should do the same thing as well? Well, 
we need to consider. We need to consider, first, this was different in a few ways. First, we see that it was entirely voluntary. No one, unlike communism, had, was forced to give what they give. Unlike the Qumran community that the zealots of the Bible time lived in, they were forced to give up their property in order to be part of that uh, uh, community. It was entirely voluntary. As we read that passage of Scripture, and we're going to talk about it more in a few moments here in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 4, Peter even says to Ananias, wasn't it yours before you sold it and yours after you sold it? The giving was voluntary. The second thing we observe is the example of Barnabas wouldn't be a sterling example of private ownership in the church if it wasn't voluntary. He owned these things, but he sold them and gave voluntarily. So again, this isn't teaching Christian communism. This is free giving of free will. The third thing is that private ownership in the church continued. Because you, you could say, well, this sets the example and the book of Acts hereafter you know, had to have had uh, communism or something like that. No, no, not at all. You look throughout the book of Acts and in the epistles that believers in Jesus still owned houses, still owned property. And like Mary in uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 12, she had a house and she had even a servant that she uh, had employed. And they used that to care for the needs of others in the church. And there's even a fourth one. You think about in Acts chapter 6, the calling of the first deacons and the distribution of the prophet or, or to, to the widows and apportioning not from each one's lots from a common fund, but through charitable giving, not sacrificial giving up everything. Not unlike our benevolence fund. Do you guys know that our church has a benevolence fund? We don't make a big deal about that. But if you want to designate a gift above and beyond your tithes to that benevolence fund, it goes and we have a pair of deacons every year that are entrusted with when we receive a request from somebody in our church or even outside our church for financial assistance. Those deacons have a questionnaire and they do it in a way that best stewards the money that you all voluntarily give to meet the needs of others inside our church and outside our church as they come to us. It follows the biblical pattern of giving freely, not communism. So how does this apply to us? Well, I think the first thing we need to remember is that not unlike the other things we've seen in the book of Acts is to avoid the extremes. Don't get caught up on one end or other. It's not communism on one side, but it's also not strict selfishness. We should share as we're led by the Holy Spirit. As God gives to you, you can give to others. As you've been blessed, you can be a blessing. Psalm 67 in the Bible throughout gives that example. And we should follow the example of the first church is the second thing we should see. And that's be aware of the needs of others. Be thoughtful of the needs of others and freely give as you're able to meet the needs of others. And then even this idea of laying it at the apostles' feet. I surely don't want anybody, I'm not an apostle, to lay things at my feet. But we have a mechanism in our church for you to give freely. You can give without going through the church benevolence fund if you find a need, and you should. Just meet the needs. Give. But if you desire to give, you give that to the church as a designated gift. And then through our mechanism of the deacons and the questionnaire and all those things, we give to help meet needs. Our stewardship, though commanded, should be joyful. And what we see here is a joyful sharing that demonstrated the unity of the church, demonstrated the grace that was on the apostles, and advanced the gospel cause. This is pretty amazing stuff. 
We had the positive example in Barnabas. Now we get a negative example. And we get to our second major movement of our sermon. And that's the terrible consequences of hypocrisy. The terrible consequences of hypocrisy. When you first read this, you go, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because they stole or they kept money. It's deeper than that. It's different than that. The terrible consequences of hypocrisy. There may be no passage in the New Testament that raises such questions about why would God be so harsh? Why is he not redemptive that this seems out of touch with the God of the New Testament that we think about as grace and love and we forget is still a God of righteousness and justice? So we have to consider what the passage says and what the passage doesn't say. What is the sin? And then, of course, what is our lesson today? And the first subpoint there is threatening church unity. What happened here and the reason I believe and many commentators believe that God responded with such severe punishment to Ananias and Sapphira is this is the first church, the foundation for all the other churches to come that was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do signs and wonders to attract folks to the gospel so the church would grow and multiply in a way like never seen before unless there's been Holy Spirit revivals throughout the ages. And this first church with a sin like this of Ananias and Sapphira was so threatened by their unity because of the depth of their sin and duplicity that God responded with great severity. Let's go to our scripture, chapter 5, verse 1. It says that there was a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, and they sold a piece of property, just unlike, not unlike the other examples we've heard here, right? Joseph, also called Barnabas, just did that. But with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself. The word used there in the Greek is used only once in the Greek New Testament, a hapax legomenon. Remember, I've told you before, if a word's used only one time in the Bible, we better pay attention because that means the Bible writer went, there's no other other word we use that best captures this. The word used there means to embezzle and pilfer. So even by the word used, if you're reading it in Greek, you go, hey, wait a second. How was it they were embezzling or pilfering? Well, we've got to read on in the story and see what happened. So then Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? How did Peter know this? Well, he was filled by the Holy Spirit. God gave him a divine insight into what was going on behind the scenes with Ananias and Sapphira. And he says that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money from yourself from the land that you received. Now we have to go time out, Peter, time out. If he sold the land and he received, let's use a round number, $10,000, why couldn't he keep $2,000 for himself? I mean, you know, and give part of it to the church. Was there something that said he had to give all $10,000 to the church? No, there wasn't. But we get that hint in verse 4. Go on in verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't it the money at your disposal? What made you think you could do such a thing? You have lied, not lied to men, but to God. What he's saying is this. Ananias, you're representing this as if you're giving all of it to the church, just like Barnabas did and everybody else. 
You're wanting the spiritual accolades and the praise. You're wanting people to say, wow, look at that Ananias and Sapphira. They sold land and they gave all the money to the church. Aren't they great? What Ananias and Sapphira wanted, and the reason we say it's a sin of hypocrisy is this. They wanted the praise of people, but they also wanted some proceeds from the sale. If they had just wanted one or the other, it had been okay. They could have sold the land, kept all the money for themselves. Nobody would have faulted them. It's their land to sell. It was free giving. It wasn't communism. Or they could have sold the land, gave all the money to the church. Everybody would have gone, great, that's wonderful, thank you. We'll be able to meet lots of needs with that money. But because they wanted both, the division of their soul demonstrated their hypocrisy, and that was the sin. Friends, we're tempted with that here too, aren't we? We love Jesus. We love our church. We love the people in it. We're gifted to serve. But we've got to check our spirits. Are we serving for the wrong reasons? Are we giving for the wrong reasons? Are we giving for our love for God? Or are we giving for the recognition of men? That sin reveals that. Let's move on to your second point there, your second sub-point, realizing God's righteousness. It threatened the unity of the church. But what it shows is God's righteousness by His response. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. We don't have if anything was recorded. Did he say anything? I'm guessing he didn't. He just, boom, fell down right there. How did it happen? I don't know. God made it happen. Supernatural, a miracle. And great fear seized all who heard about it. Young men came and carried off his body. And then three hours later, Sapphira walks in, doesn't know what happened. Peter gives her the chance to confess. Verse 8. Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Because Peter's got the whole money. Again, let's just pick out a number, $8,000. Did you get $8,000 for this? And she's like, oh, yeah, we got $8,000. All the time knowing that they saved $2,000. Again, I don't know if it's $8,000, $2,000. I'm just making that up. And what does he say? How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? He says, these guys that are standing right over there, they just carried out your husband. They're going to carry out you right now. Boom. Boom. She falls down dead. The whole church and all who heard about these. Verse 11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It leads us to that second uncomfortable question on your outline. Is God too severe in His response? Is God too severe in His response? Because we're like, man, what's the big deal, God? They still gave most of the money to the church. Remember, the big deal was their hypocrisy, the division. They wanted the church's praise, but they also wanted some of the profit. This isn't a comfortable situation, and it's not a comfortable solution. And we note that today's churches are empty of such standards. Well, we're not an apostolic church or a founding church, but we're set on this firm foundation. So let's consider a few reasons here, right? The first one is this. The gravity of their sin. Peter repeated it to Sapphira as he did with Ananias. You're sinning against the Holy Spirit. Not against people, but against God the Holy Spirit Himself. It's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a different sin. But it's sinning against the Holy Spirit and therefore it's severe. Lying to the Holy Spirit. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. You can't do it. The second thing to consider is the importance of the human conscience. Now, this is developed throughout the Bible, but you see it throughout the book of Acts. 
that Paul, before Felix in Acts chapter 24, 18, says his conscience is clear. In other words, he knows that he told the truth even in a difficult situation that could make him look bad. The conscience of a man. John, in the Gospel of John, but particularly in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and even in Revelation, talks about walking in the light. That's that same idea of shining the light of God's righteousness on your life to reveal if there's any sinfulness hidden in your life. He's saying, I'm walking in the light. I know I'm sinful, but God's light is on me and showing my righteousness that's by God's grace. The human conscience is important. Let's get a third point here, the necessity of church discipline. Churches today tend to vacillate between the two uh, poles. Church discipline is too severe and may be tied up in even uh, human legalism that comes along with fundamentalist type interpretations of God's word or even fundamentalist religions, or it's lax and we don't do any of it. Again, I think our caution would be to avoid either extreme, that secret sins should be dealt with secretly and public sins should be dealt with publicly. If there is someone in this church that the situation is presented to me as a pastor or you as a brother or sister in Christ, and it's a secret sin between people, you don't broadcast it to the whole church. If you gossip about it, then you're in sin as well. But if you're invited in to be a part of the solution to bring healing, to bring forgiveness and seek to bring reconciliation, you deal with the parties that the sin involves. That's all. You don't even need to talk to me about it. You can do it. You're equipped. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God's word. But if the sin involves the whole church or a group in the church, cautiously, carefully, you may need to consider, how do we involve the church in explaining this? I had a youth pastor that served with me in my previous church. Sharp young man, attracted lots of teenagers to our youth group, but he had a moral failure. And it wasn't me that did it, but he that tried to make it a church-wide issue. So we had to talk about it as an entire church. We weren't trying to air anybody's dirty laundry. We weren't trying to make the young lady involved look bad. But she confessed it to her church. He never confessed it to our church, but we had to tell him. Why? Because it was a sin against not only this young lady, but the youth group that he led, and then our entire church as he tried to defend himself and make up lies and reasons and things like that. He continued to sin against the church. We had to deal with it with the church. It's an uncomfortable question for us. Is God's response too severe? I would say it's severe for our modern sensibilities, but it's not severe for God's righteousness. Which leads us to a couple questions. Some helpful lessons for me to apply as we seek to... uh, Uh, gather up this sermon that has had two things that challenge our modern evangelical minds. Is this communism and is this severe? And the first one is this, what could encourage my generosity? Because the positive lesson in this is that we should give because God's blessed us and maybe we have more than we need, that how and should we give to be a blessing to others? What could encourage my generosity? Well, I think it starts with a proper understanding of who God is, a proper understanding of God's blessings in your life, and it starts then with you responding in humility that you realize everything I have is God's. He's given me my time, my talents, my possessions, all these treasures, and how can I steward all of them? Because they're His, not mine. And what is it that I steward, possess, that He's calling me to give to others to be a blessing to them? That answer is going to be different for all of you. 
but humble response to God and love for others will change our generosity. The second helpful lesson is how do I respond to God's holiness? How is it that I respond to God's holiness? Is it a, whoa, I'm not sure I want to follow a God like that. He scares me. He probably should scare you a little bit. Most of us would do well to consider God's righteousness and God's holiness as more strict and severe and absolute and perfect than we do. We kind of treat Jesus like our buddy. We sing nice songs about him. We're happy to come to church. But when we see an example of God's judgment, it freaks us out. If it freaks us out, maybe we need to learn a little bit more about who God is and what sin is and what righteousness is and our reverence and respect and honor and awe from Him. And how do we do that? Spend time with Him. Spend time in His Word. Read His whole Word. See the character of God revealed in His Word. And see how He desires that we as His people respond to Him. Pray. And the more you pray, the more you get to know Him. Practice other spiritual disciplines such as quiet and fasting and margin and giving. And in all these things, God, by His Holy Spirit, will begin to shape your heart to be more like Jesus and less like the one that you were born with, more selfless and less selfish, more otherish and less selfish, as you become more like Jesus. It leads us to our scripture memory verse of the month, which is on the big screen there for you, and let's say that together. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts 5, 42. That's the bottom line. The Spirit, the church, and the world. God's Spirit moves among us even now. You are the church today, and He's called us on mission to share the good news of Jesus with the world through our giving, through our humility, and through our witness. Let's pray together. God, we thank You that even when we come to things in Your Word that are challenging to us and maybe even troublesome and confusing, that Your Spirit speaks to us. And as we practice good biblical hermeneutics and consider the time and consider the passage and consider what the rest of your word teaches us about a given subject, we can clearly see things that come across as troubling or hard at the first. So, Father, we pray now that uh, the lesson we've studied today would encourage us to generosity, would encourage us to properly understand your righteousness and holiness and that we would respond with hearts of humility towards you and others, full of love for you and others. And that because we've been here today and heard your word, we'd live differently, more like Jesus, we pray. And Father, we pray for those who are here that need to trust Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, that they'd make that decision today for anyone online as well. And for those of us that are believers, that we'd respond as you'd call us to and your spirit moves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.